Well, hey, welcome back to the Making Disciples Every Day podcast. My name is Jason Dukes. I'm on team with the Brentwood Baptist Family of Churches, and my colleague and friend, Paul Wilkinson, is with me as well. Present. Thankful. We're not, we don't, lately it feels a little like we've had to go solo a few times, and so it's good to be together uh, on this again. And so excited today about our guest and about this conversation that, that goes in line with, with the, the series that our family of churches just wrapped up with called True North. And that series focused on finding our way. And again, we've said this several times, it wasn't about telling people what to think, but more how to think, how to think um, in the lens of, and through, or how to think through the processing of the ways, hopefully, that we would suggest that Jesus thought, the way that the gospel might filter and help us translate life and relationships and uh, the various things that we are encountering in this current culture. And so uh, thankful for that series, and I hope a lot of you that are listening who were a part of it or at least got to hear some of it uh, appreciated it for what it was. I think it was a meaningful um, eight-week journey. And so this is a bit of a transition podcast in that sense. It kind of moves us toward the next series coming up. But I'm really excited about our guest today. It's Doug McKelvey. And he, he may go by Douglas, and I'm just being too buddy-buddy uh, too with him. But, um, but, but I'll read his bio because I, I really like it. But it's, you're going to get the feel for my sense of humor here, and you may either like it or not like it. But his bio on Amazon is the remote descendant of Scottish horse-thieving ancestors, which I just think even starting off that way is an indication of how much fun this will be. But Douglas Kane McKelvey has already bested the dubious achievements of his predecessors by authoring six published books and penning lyrics for more than 300 songs recorded by a variety of artists, including Kenny Rogers, Switchfoot, and Jason Gray. And we'll come back to those because I really would love to know uh, what songs in particular Kenny and Switchfoot and Jason sang. Uh, Douglas recently published Every Moment Holy New Liturgies for Daily Life, which is available uh, on Amazon or at everymomentholy.com. He's currently writing a fantasy novel set in 19th century America, pursuing publication uh, of a young adult sci-fi novel and developing a board game. McKelvey was born in New Hampshire and raised in East Texas, but now dwells in the long shadows somewhere south of Nashville with his Norwegianish wife. He has three half Norwegianish adult daughters and two sons-in-law. And Douglas also has a dog and a beard. And it's a great beard, by the way, Doug. I appreciate that, Jason. <laughs> so do you want to, st I, I, I didn't ask you that last time. Do you want to go by Doug or Douglas? Which one are we, which one are we shooting for here? Uh, Doug is shorter and easier for conversational purposes. So let's go with that. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, what would you add or rebuke or confirm from that, uh, from that bio? We try to give our guests a chance to either be as, as personal or non-personal as they'd like to be. No, that, that bio sounds like it's still pretty accurate. So, so I'll just let it stand. Very cool. Well, I am curious, though. Can we can we go ahead and start there and say, so can you tell us what song Kenny sang for you? Well, the, the Kenny Rogers song was one that it was originally recorded by Point of Grace. Um, it was a song I wrote with Steve Seiler, and it was called Circle of Friends. Mm -hmm. um, Point of Grace recorded it. Uh, when would that have been? Sometime in the mid or late 90s, I guess. Um, and it was a song that that you know, had some legs and, and got a lot of mileage. But a few years ago, um, Kenny Rogers was recording a, um, a record that was mostly gospel songs and hymns and that sort of thing. But um, I guess but somewhere along the way, he had heard Circle of Friends, and it made an impression on him. So he recorded that one. 
or his record. So that's cool. And then what about yeah. what about John Foreman and those guys? What what Switchfoot song did did they uh, did they record from you? Well, it was on their second record, uh, the New Way to Be Human record, uh-huh. and I co-wrote lyrics for the song New Way to Be Human, and then for Augustine's Confession. I think was the name of of um, that song. It's been so long since I've looked at it, I can't remember. Um, but you know, really, that's one of those um, one of those co-writes that it looks great in a bio because it's switchfoot. Sure. Um, but I've always felt a little, a little like a poser in that <laughs> one because John Foreman is such a brilliant lyricist and he really didn't need me there. Um, in those co-writes, um, it was something his, um, I don't know, a producer or, or record label had, had set it up. Um, and I mean, I added a few little things, but you know, the the brilliance that that um, is present in in those Switchfoot songs was not a result of me being there. So, um, yeah, I feel more like a parasite in that particular co-writing relationship. <laughs> yeah, that's a good uh, description of humility, parasite. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's good stuff. And then Jason Gray, you know, I'm, I mean, I'll, I will, I'll be honest. I'm not sure. Almost every one of our listeners, I would guarantee know who Kenny Rogers is. I would guess that most of them probably have heard of Switchfoot, but maybe not all have heard of Jay. Now I like Jason Gray a lot, but I don't know if a lot, I don't know if all of our listeners would say they have heard of him, but, but which one, what song did you record with Jason or did he record? Um, Actually, Jason is someone that I wrote with over a span of several years and multiple albums of his. Um, so there were a number of songs that I co-wrote with him that ended up on his records, and I, I wouldn't actually remember all of them. Um, yeah. One of them that was a single was Nothing Is Wasted. Um, and then on his, I think that was on his album A Way to See in the Dark, and there were, um, I think there were, three or four songs that I, I wrote with him that ended up on that record. Um, but yeah, nothing is wasted is probably the one that people would be most likely to be familiar with. Very cool. Very cool, man. Really is. Thankful for it. You, when we, I mean, it's funny because our conversation that we've had before the first time you and I met face to face, uh, it, it it's interesting to me how much we were able to share with each other in that time. And you probably don't remember any of it, but, but you encouraged me with something specific because my son was looking at colleges. You encouraged me to take a look in one particular direction, but you also, no, I do remember that. Uh, but I also got to hear a little bit about what you get to do. And it was neat to me that you also, of the, of the ways that you get to share your creativity, that it, that it spans into several different uh, areas. So that's so I'm, I'm I'm really pretty much a one trick pony with the the writing brainstorming kind of side of things so so one the the reason that I even knew who you were when you shared a little bit at at uh, Q the Q ideas conference that was here in Nashville back in April of 2019 um was because of a book that someone had recommended to my wife and me uh, called Every Moment Holy. And it's a liturgy book. It's a book that, that talks about or gives liturgies for everyday things. I mean, is that, am I, am, am I doing it justice? I don't want to belittle it at all with that simple of a description, but, but I mean, that's the best way I know how to describe it. And, and it, it's been a meaningful resource for us as a family talk talk a little bit about that because i do want to make sure that those who are listening are aware of it and 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 we can direct them to where they can go purchase it but talk about that like where did that come from and and what led you to create that sure um so the the book every moment holy and you know i'm just i'm looking at it right now because i had that one out here beside me in case I needed to refer to it. 
And I this is actually the first time that I realized that there is no printed subtitle to the book. And I had always just assumed that there was. <laughs> <laughs> so, and in fact, in, you know, in Instagram posts or whatever, I've used every moment, holy new liturgies for daily life, mm. because I thought, I thought the subtitle was printed on it. So that's kind of funny. Um, but it, it began um, not as a book idea, but just because I was, I was struggling to make any progress on a novel that, that I had been trying to write for over a year. And um, a lot of what I was struggling with was just bringing myself um, into, you know, the kind of, the kind of headspace, just having the discipline on a daily basis to sit down and actually spend the hours writing as opposed to getting distracted by, you know, everything else on my computer and checking email and, you know, checking Facebook and just that endless cycle that's so easy to, to fall into. So at a certain point, I just thought I need, I need something. I need some kind of a prayer that would really help to focus me every morning when I sit down to write. I need something that's going to remind me of who I am in relationship to my creator and of my stewardship of my craft and of my relationship to the people that I'm hoping to serve by what I'm trying to write. And so I just really recognized that I, I needed something that would help to direct my thoughts um, and would put me in that prayerful, um, expectant place and a place where I'm very aware of my own weakness and need, um, you know, which I think is the right posture for creating from is that kind of empty handed um, posture before the creator. And so, uh, as I started immediately trying to pin some ideas for, for that sort of a prayer, I thought, well, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to structure it in a, in a more traditional liturgical kind of form. Um, and I, I don't know exactly why I did that other than you know, sometimes I've found in, in writing poetry over the years that sometimes the, the strict form of something like, say, a sonnet, where you have a certain number of lines, a particular rhyme scheme, um, a particular meter that it's supposed to be written in, that rather than thwarting creativity, it's actually that structure that's imposed that forces you to go places you wouldn't have gone otherwise. Um, so, so maybe it was for some of those reasons. Um, but I've also, I, I think there's, there's beauty in a lot of the, the liturgy of the church in the, in the book of common prayer. Mm. Um, you know, some of these prayers that have been structured, um, over hundreds of years and, um, you know, that just have such a, a depth of, thought and theology to them, but also have an awareness of, of the sense of, of poetry and the aesthetic side of, of that expression. So there's a beauty and a deep well of truth that are married together. So I wrote a prayer in liturgical form and called it a liturgy for fiction writers. Uh, my friend Andrew Peterson um, who's an author and a songwriter and, and recording artist, and probably a lot of the, the people listening are familiar with, with some of his music or his book. Yeah. He and I were uh, about to do a conference together where we were, we were sharing a session, um, speaking on you know, the same topic, essentially, kind of tag-teaming it. And it had to do with story. So I, I sent him this liturgy for fiction writers and said, 
hey, would this be a good way for us to close our session to kind of have everyone who's there pray through this together? And he immediately responded and said, yeah, I love this, but man, I wish I had also a liturgy for beekeeping because he's a beekeeper as a hobby. And, <laughs> and he, lit, he rattled off a couple other things. And it was in that moment that, you know, there was just this explosion in my brain where it was where the book idea arrived almost fully formed. It was just this this sudden epiphany moment awareness that, oh, yeah, this isn't just about me needing something to help prayerfully focus me before I, you know, try to go about my vocational work. There's a bigger idea here that could really be of service to the church um, and that could really help to articulate um, for people, you know, what, what is in their hearts in various situations that they might not have the words for, but also the potential of something that could um, be a thoughtful articulation of scriptural truths. Um, that could have a discipling effect on on individuals and families. Um, you know, if, if we could create a, a book that would that would serve them and be useful in that way. So, um, you know, it's probably the fastest that a book idea has ever come together for me. I mean, within a couple of days, I had written up the pitch for it, and then went and, and pitched it to Rabbit Room Press and they got it immediately and 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 said, yeah, we want to do this, but we're a small press and this is going to take a lot of money to print this the way we would want to. So, um, so we're saying yes, but give us, you know, a year to figure out how we could pay for the first printing of this. So that's... <laughs> That's essentially what happened. And then when they finally were able to give the green light, then I had probably written a dozen of the the liturgies and prayers in the book by that point. But then I spent the next nine months just focused full time on on writing the rest of the book. That's really cool. And it and it's it's a spectacular resource. And I I, I don't even like calling it that because it's more than a resource. At least it's been that way for our family. I think, in my opinion, what gets us into trouble typically as humanity is that in every moment, the moments that get us into trouble are the moments when we tend to forget God's presence. And, you know, I, I think to me, that's what that, that's what a a book like that that's what a liturgy prayer you said it so well when you were looking to 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 focus for writing you know you were remembering who you were right like you weren't just remembering who you were or what you were doing you were posturing yourself in the context and in light of whose you were right and right right like to me that's the richness of a resource like that and i I think I, I and and I want to go serious and then funny because I do want you to to give some of the funnier uh types of moments that you've written liturgies for but I want our listeners to understand that that in light of the series that we've just walked through it's so important from a disciple making standpoint but just even as a disciple of Jesus standpoint that we remember God's presence, that we remember whose we are, that we remember that that's our true north, right? To, to take the title of the series. That's, that's the thing that, that's going to help us stay true uh, in the way that God intended or in walking the path that God intended. Or as Peterson talks about, you know, to, to, to anchor ourselves to the ancient path, right? I can't remember his exact lyric and and you'll find your way, but, you know, telling the telling his son, you know, don't wander off. Go ba- always go back to the ancient path, and yeah, and you know, I think it's that to me. That's what a liturgy does, right? Like it, 
it's this, it's like how Eugene Peterson, I've read a lot of his writings and, and some people like him, some people don't, I get that. But, but one thing I really appreciated that I read of his one time was in a dark season of his life, he got to the point where he could, the only way he knew how to pray was to pray Psalms and liturgies. That he just was in a dark season, a struggling season, and he and he and he wanted to cry out to God and struggled to do it, and so he he kept himself reminded during that season by these psalms and liturgies, and um, so so just to, before we go funny with it again, we'll we'll take comic relief here in just a minute, but but as you even look back through that, like what are some of the ones that have kept you anchored are there any that stand out to you that you would say you know in this every moment holy idea and mindset these are some that really have kept me anchored so you're saying some that are in the book every moment holy either that or even some that are not but but what are what are some types of liturgies either in the book or not that you've used as constant reminders yeah well i um I mean, I grew up in a very non-liturgical tradition, um, you know, a tradition that where actually we would have looked very suspiciously at anything that seemed to smack of any sort of, of liturgy or, you know, anything that wasn't spontaneous. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, in a, in, in the more general sense, um, you know, there is no such thing as a church or a church service without liturgy, um, because really liturgy in that sense is just a reference to the order and content of a church service. So, sure, sure. Um, you know, but, but, um, but while I was in college, um, I, I visited a couple times with a friend, a church that he was going to where the Book of Common Prayer was used. And that was the first time I was introduced to anything like that, to a, um, you know, to a prayer that's, that's been thoughtfully crafted and, the, the, you know, with careful attention to the, to the theology and the beauty of it. And, you know, when would that have been? That would have been in the late 80s. Um, and as we, as we prayed the prayer of repentance from the, from the book of common prayer, um, and we prayed the line, you know, asking God's forgiveness, um, for things we had done and things we had left undone. Mm. That was, that was a profound new thought to me. No one, though I had grown up in churches, that idea had never been framed um, in such a way that it, you know, that it connected with me or, or, or made any sense. And I didn't, you know, it wasn't something that in the moment I could fully wrap my brain around and, and understand the nuances, but I recognized that there was a depth there. Um, you know, this new universe to explore. Um, and, and it was actually the poetry of the line, the, the rhythm of the way it was written that allowed it to stick in my mind. And so for years after that, it was there and I was considering it and I was chewing on it and slowly, you know, connecting it to concepts in scripture and, um, and in my own experience and finding that, okay, I was, I was gifted in this liturgical prayer, this articulation of a concept that my understanding then subsequently grew into the space that that line had created. If that, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so there were, there were things that I encountered then, you know, sometime after that initial introduction to the book of common prayer, I bought a copy of it and, um, 
you know, and it wasn't something I read every day, but it was something that, that I would pick up every so often and, and, you know, read some of the prayers in that. Um, there's a collection of Puritan prayers called Valley of Vision. And that, um, I mean, the book Every Moment Holy actually owes a lot to that Puritan tradition, which apparently was a, it was a common practice um, for individuals to craft these beautiful, theologically rich prayers um, and then to pass them around for other people to use as well. Um, and that book, Valley of Vision, is a collection of, of a number of those prayers. Um, and then you have the, you know, the early Celtic Christian tradition in Ireland. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think at this point that we would agree with everything about their theology. Um, but they had this marvelous sense of God being present with them at every moment of every day and in every activity. So they have all these, they had prayers for everything. You know, they had a prayer for milking the cow in the morning. They had a prayer for um, covering the the coals on the hearth fire at night. Um, you know, they just, they had they they did have a stronger sense than than we've tended to i think of every moment being lived in the presence of god and 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 being being a holy moment in that sense and so with the writing of every moment holy i recognize i'm not creating a new thing here i'm really reintroducing um something that has that has shown up in various forms um, at various times in the history of Christianity, in the history of, you know, God's, God's people, um, as, as he's worked through them, you know, across geography and cultures and, and, and decades and millennia. So um, that was, you know, that was actually one of the coolest things about the project as it came together was recognizing this is not a new thing. Um, this is reintroducing something that has been valuable to believers in the past. And I hope that it gives permission for people today to realize that it's not just about here's a book and you can use this, but hey, maybe this is a, you know, a practice that you can engage in to sit down and thoughtfully and creatively pour your heart out to God in a way that will be meaningful to other people and that will serve them. And, and it's been cool to hear um, stories filter back of now that the book has, has been out for, um, I guess it's been almost two years though during a good bit of that time, it's been unavailable um, and out of print, which is just you know, some of the, the birthing pains of being, of, of a small press trying to afford, you know, to be able to do large enough print runs to keep something in print. Um, but, but stories have, have come back to me of, of people saying, Hey, you know, sending me a, a shot on, on Facebook or something of, of this handwritten prayer and saying, you know, my, my 10 year old daughter um, wanted to write a, a liturgy that we could do at her sister's birthday tomorrow. So here's what she wrote for her sister. And, you know, um, and, and I love that because I, you know, I think it's a, I think it's such a valuable practice um, both for us as individuals in thinking through what we really know to be true about something from scripture Um you know, what in the Francis Schaeffer Labrie world they might refer to as thinking Christianly about something. Yeah. Um, so it's valuable from that standpoint, but it's, but it's, it's also um, just valuable in, in our 
collective devotional lives together. I talked so long there, I forgot what your question was. I hope I answered it along the way. No, 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 it's good. No, it was all good stuff or we would have stopped you. So it was, uh, it was I think the value, because I'm just sitting here flipping through the table of contents um, as you're sharing with us, and, and you touch on so many things that really are just normal stuff that you're going to encounter. Some of it spontaneous, some of it necessary, like meals, um, like interacting with other people. But the beauty of it is it, it almost for, it gives a pathway, I should say that rather than imposes. It gives a pathway for seeing scripture and seeing God in the normalcy of life, as opposed to uh, what can often become the case in the local church. And for myself personally, uh, Bible study is one thing. Prayer is one thing that we do in the morning off to the side, and then we go do, do life having been filled up with that. I think what your text does is it encourages us to take that along with us throughout the uh, progression of the day. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, that's, that's certainly a big part of the, of the vision for this book is that it would um, help people to, you know, to cultivate that kind of understanding. Um, when shortly after college um i was invited by charlie peacock who is a producer and recording artist um he and his wife had just started a nonprofit foundation related to um the intersection of faith and the arts and you know kind of inviting people to make a collective journey together in um at that at that intersection of, of of what it means to be an artist in the church and um and so he had invited me to come out and and you know be a part of of working for that nonprofit foundation um and so that's what got me out to nashville in the early 90s but charlie at the time was really thoughtfully considering and articulating this idea of quorum Deo, of all of life lived under the gaze of God, of there being no separation between the parts of our lives, but all of it being, you know, one seamless act of worship, um, so that nothing is compartmentalized. It's not, you know, church and Bible study over here and then our work over here and then the time we spend playing with our kids over here. But it's like everything, everything is lived under the gaze of God and is part of our act of worship. And that was so significant to me. That was a paradigm shift. Um, and my, my hope with every moment holy was that kind of woven through it and implicit to the whole project is that idea that all of life is lived under the gaze of God and as an act of worship and God is present in every moment. So every moment is holy. And then for me, part of, part of the process of writing the book was the exercise of saying, okay, if this is true, how does this connect with the necessary act of changing a toddler's diaper five times a day? Um, you know, it's because it's one thing just to, <laughs> yeah, it's one thing just to say abstractly, every moment is holy, but it's another thing to pick some of those particular moments and, and say, okay, let's actually unpack this. And based on what scripture reveals, um, what, are the, what are the ways in which this, really, this moment really might be holy? How, how does this moment when we're, when we're changing a diaper touch eternity? And the reality is that it does. But, you know, it, it, it takes some... Um, it takes some considering with some things to, to, to arrive at a place where you, where you feel like, okay, this is the bottom line of what I really believe to be true based on scripture about this part of our lives. Um, so 
Yeah. Um, okay. Paul, I think it was you that, that made that last comment and asked that question, but that's, that's definitely, um, I mean, what you've, what you've picked up on there is, I mean, maybe that's the main theme of the, of the book or the, you know, my main, my primary hope for, um, the way in which this book might be a part of discipling people in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. And I think it takes seriously Paul's uh, statement, which was, doesn't seem to be, I mean, obviously there's some rhetoric in it, but whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. I think the work takes very seriously that and gives a vehicle for actually doing it. It gives a model, a template, uh, even some expression for those who like me, maybe not be able to express it so well. Uh, themselves. It gives us a vehicle for glorifying God. And I mean, what's more basic than eating and drinking just just to stay alive? And yet that ought to glorify God. How much more so some of the stuff you touch on in your book, like our labor, our family, our recreation. So I think, you know, some, some people listening, I think even like what you described in your background, some people listening are not going to have a space in their memory where liturgies are were held with any nostalgic value whatsoever, right? Like, because, mm-hmm. because a lot of folks and, and, you know, it's the typical conservative evangelical uh, streams typically not, not all the time, but typically don't involve liturgy. And, and I know our, our tribe in particular, although I think we try to, to engage in more than just one tribe, but, but the tribe that at least the church was, was founded on and that we continue to relate with, with Baptist, you know, you don't often see Baptist engaging in liturgy, but, but I think like you, when I began to realize it and see it now, I grew up in new Orleans. So, so the Catholic culture of new Orleans, um, and friends that I had that were Catholic, uh, liturgy was more a part of that culture, if that makes sense. Um, and so, you know, and it's not just Catholic, I'm just saying in that, in that vein, that's where I saw some of it. But then yeah. when I got to college, like you, is when I first began to see it in other areas, right? I began to see um, it play itself out and show itself and the beauty of putting words and putting expression and I think in the chaos of our day, the chaos of our culture right now, the busyness, the, 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 the rhythms that we keep, which are not rhythmic at all, if we're honest, because they sound almost more like just a bunch of white noise with random beats, right? If we had to put, if we had to put a metaphor to it. I mean, I, I, I think the busyness of our lives, this kind of thing, this kind of pausing, to remember these types of resources to have a liturgy for these everyday moments um, is something that can really help us stay on our true north, stay focused on God's presence, or as you said, the gaze of God in the everyday of life. And and um, so just for maybe a moment of comic relief, give us some of the ones that, that are the sillier. You've mentioned, you've mentioned the, um, the um the diaper changing one right i have seven kids and so um i about a year ago i got a major pay raise because the last one got out of diapers yeah so, so all that to say um you know i i can relate to that one but we've used other ones in there that that again when i say silly i'm not belittling them at all i'm saying they're the more okay, I wouldn't have thought of that kind of moments, right? But yet, sure. but yet doing it keeps us reminded of the relatable God that we get to walk with. The God who not only has things that he's asked us to take part in, but laughs with us and, and holds us and jumps with us and dances with us and sings with us and like the God that's invited us into his life that's abundant and the dance that he dances and, uh, and yeah. the oneness, right, that's there. That To me, that's the beauty of it, of these that maybe seem silly in some ways, but are more the, the, the just mundane and everyday, right? So give some examples of those because I think it would be helpful 
it'll be fun for folks to kind of hear what some of those are. Okay. Well, first, uh, just as a little related side note, um, you know, the funniest thing to me uh, in this book was something that was a surprise to me because um, Ned Bustard, who is the illustrator who just did the, the wonderful line of cut block print illustrations for the book, he also did the layout for it. Mm. And he was... Um, you know, kind of, we were very last minute up against the, the deadline to get the the manuscript, um, you know, the, the fully laid out version turned into the printer. And Ned was was coming up with some of the scripture citations to put in the margins of the of the book, you know, alongside some of the liturgies. And um it was several months after the book was out before I realized that on the liturgy for changing diapers, he had put first Corinthians fifteen fifty one. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Which any parent of an infant can relate to that out of context scripture <laughs> that's awesome um, that's awesome so let's see well there's i mean there's one for the keeping of bees um the, Not, that i had mentioned and that was yeah yes i wrote that one for him um you know there, there are some of those everyday chore kind of ones like the the washing of windows and um and then um, there's one for waiters and waitresses uh, because, you know, one of my daughters was a waitress for a while and, and I've had friends who were. And, you know, once you once you see what what waiters and waitresses sometimes have to put up with on their shift, then <laughs> yes. you can recognize they could use a, a, a prayer to help focus them and put them, you know, in a in a frame of mind where they're um, in a better place to serve, to extend grace to the ungracious. <laughs> That's right. um, right. Let's see. Uh, there's one before taking the stage that actually a lot of, a lot of friends um, in the music community who, who are touring artists have told me that, you know, they've, they've taken to using that one before every show. Um, let's see what else, what else would be funny here? I don't know if there are any of them you're thinking of, feel free to, to name those. Uh, there's one for the welcoming of a new pet. Uh, there's one for the loss of electricity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the, probably the most, the, the one that people have most responded to, at least based on, um, it's definitely the one that the most people have made social media posts, um, showing a photo of it with their morning cup of coffee is the, a liturgy for the ritual of morning coffee. Yeah. Um, so it also works for tea. You know, you can just switch the, uh, it work. It actually works without any sort of morning beverage. If, if you want, um, yeah. Could you talk one for a meal? I'm looking at your table of contents here. There's one that talks about those um, who are flooded by too much information, and I think that's sure. so apt for what we're talking through as a congregation right now. Yeah, yeah, and um, I mean, it seems like the just the volume of information that we're flooded with just over the last decade just seems to have exponentially increased. And I think it's not just the amount of information even, but it's that so much of it is targeted at pushing our buttons and increasing our stress levels. And, um, you know, that at a certain point, it, it just becomes so counterproductive yeah. um, to our lives. And, um, 
you know, both to our productivity and to our, our, just our ability to rest mm-hmm. and to, to live life in a posture of, of rest in God, because we're, we're so being pulled into these places of, um, you know, I, I just, I don't know for me, it's like, I can't, I, I really can't do much reading of, of comments on the internet following an article or that kind of thing, because, you know, I just immediately start to feel those visceral reactions one way or the other. And I just recognize this is just, it, there's nothing, nothing productive about that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think sometimes, you know, a, a prayer like that, a liturgy for those flooded by too much information, it can, I, I hope it can be a good reminder for people in those moments that, you know what, maybe there's nothing productive to my soul or spirit about um, keeping the TV news on right now and, you know, hearing more and more of, of this or, you know, continuing to scroll down through these articles about, you know, whatever the latest scandal is that's, that's going on right now, you know, it's okay to, to turn this off, to step back from it and to, um, you know, to know, to remember that God is in charge of history. This is his story that he's telling and he is in control and it's going somewhere and it's going to the place he wants it to where ultimately you know, there's going to be a redeemed new creation and all of this stuff that, that overwhelms us now, if we try to, to carry it, um, you know, it's, it's ultimately not going to matter. Those aren't the eternal things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, that there's not a place to be engaged in culture and and as followers of Jesus to also be responsible citizens and to be part of the conversation but um, you know I know for me and I think for a lot of other people it can so quickly reach a point where there's there are just so many voices shouting that um, that there's nothing that's going to be productive to my soul that I'm going to get from remaining in this fire hydrant stream of of information and and conversation and argument that's constantly going on that's a good perspective for these times when yeah. we're so inundated no doubt about it and i think i think just highlighting and and highlighting something you said there i think the the idea of framing this inside of a of disciples making disciples of of this mission that jesus has invited us on I mean, even something as simple as people who follow Jesus modeling what civil conversation looks like in this yeah. age of, of this bombardment of information. You know, it, 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 like you said, the comments on, on the, we have this bombardment of information and then we have this bombardment of our opinions on it, right? And, right, and, right. And in the bombardment of the opinions on it, it, you know, can we do with these liturgies or even with the pause, what a moment of pause to remember God's presence, to remember whose we are, to recognize his gaze upon this everyday moment. Would that pause help us to take a different posture, right? So instead of, right. instead of the posture of now I'm going to tell you my adamant opinion, and you're a moron if you don't think it, right? Don't agree yeah. with me. Instead of that posture, the posture of you you matter. Help me understand why you think that way. You know, and and sure. I mean, that kind of value even is a gospel telling type of thing because it it recognizes God's gaze in that everyday moment and it recognizes God's gaze and his presence with that everyday person and that everyday relationship and in that everyday conversation. And I think, I think even like you said that, I think even that posture goes such a long way in us engaging with the culture 
and wanting people to discover their identity in Christ as well. And, um, and the, just the gracious and merciful and compassionate and truthful and just state that, that the reality that we get to anchor ourselves in because of that, uh, of the faith and the gift of the grace that we've been given. And, and man, I think, you know, if you're listening and you're thinking, you know, how does all, how does all this affect my disciple making relationships? Well, I would say even step back further and ask the question, how does it help me to be more mindful of the way Jesus valued people in his disciple making relationships? Because it always seemed like he had the father in mind. And, and you see him point to the father so often in his, in his time, in his uh, ministry. And, you know, how do we do that? Right. How do we do that? How do we process that way? How do we think that way? Um, I think these are so helpful in, in helping people to, to do that. Yeah. Well, that's very well said. And it's, it's almost a, I mean, it, it really is becoming countercultural, I think, to be present and interacting with people in a caring and kind and patient and generous and gracious kind of way um, in the public square. Um, I, I think you're, you're so right about that, that that, um, that kind of interaction is just so quickly being lost that, um, you know, but maybe there's a, maybe there's a good side to that in that if we as followers of Jesus can begin to mindfully interact in those ways with people, it, it, might feel more than ever like a cup of cool water offered to someone who's lost in a desert. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because in the end of Matthew 10, right, Jesus even point blank says that, that that's not a small thing, that small cup of water that you give. And I mean, that's a big deal. I agree. I think the, you know, not to overuse the title at all, but I think even the title of, of, the the group of liturgies that you provide for the everyday, the every moment holy. I think one of the best things we can do as people who want to join Jesus in this disciple making and his disciple making movement, um, you know, get in on his stuff because it's done. It, it's just it's beautiful and it's life giving and it's it's resurrecting what was intended, right? And and I think you know, that if we see people the way he did, that every person is can be holy. If we see every moment holy, every conversation can be holy. If we see, I mean, to me, that's really what salt and light is about. It's not me bringing something to it that wasn't there. It's me being able to highlight what actually already is there because God is. Mm. And you know, I think even that idea, even the title itself, along with just the resource that it provides, what those liturgies that keep us mindful, um, I think is so significant. As as we yeah. as as we wrap here, um, just think, speaking of mindful, being mindful of your time, you've been very generous with it with us, and and um, you know, we as we wrap here. Any any final thoughts or encouragement you would give to our listeners just as they think about this, whether it's from a disciple-making perspective or or just even a a kind of reorienting ourselves perspective to, to seeing every moment holy. Any any final thoughts or encouragements you would give? Well, as as you were talking just a moment ago and, and saying that um that you see this as um, it's not that we're doing something that's making the moment holy, right? But it's um, yeah. it's a recognition of what it already is, and and that made me think of um, something that uh, I think there was a an essay I had written for the Rabbit Room um, 
probably a couple of years ago. But but in that, I had said something about um, my, my pastor had told me the first time that as a pastor, he was getting ready to offer communion to, to, you know, lead the communion service. He said it was, it was so significant to him um, because he recognized in that moment uh, what, what this meant in that, you know, that, that act of, of consecration of, you know, of setting out, um, the bread and the wine. He said it, it was like, it's a conscious drawing forth. It's a lifting up, a marking out recognition of these particular things as holy, but it's not because this piece of bread and this cup of wine are any more holy than all other bread and all other wine. But because by this conscious act, by this liturgy, we are reminding ourselves of the truth that everything in the world will one day be this, Hmm. that all parts of creation will one day be seen for what they truly are and viewed again through the knowledge of their consecration. You know, they're being set apart for God. Hmm. And so this bread and this communion wine so consecrated are like a first fruits. They're a reminder. They're a prelude. They're a means of refocusing our vision with this greater clarity that sees all things, you know, even if only for this flickering moment, but sees them as they more truly and eternally are, you know, in kind of um, shot through with that light of eternity. And so I, I think with um, with this whole idea that we're talking about of of every moment being holy and life being lived under the gaze of God and all of life being an act of worship, um, it's important to keep it in the context of where all of this is going, that all of this is heading somewhere, that all of this is moving toward the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the restoration of everything that was broken in the fall. And, and so I I think for me, that's the, uh, it's, it's that forward vision part of it. I guess the, you know, it's that ultimate end that God has given us, you know, a, a partial picture of, enough to for our hearts to yearn forward towards it um that for me is what gives meaning to um these kind of liturgical practices to these prayers to this idea that that god is present with me in every moment and i'm trying to to remember that and to um you know to to live as much of my life as I can in the awareness of that, making choices based on that. Um, but it's all with this joy, you know, it's not duty. Yeah, It's right. joy because there is this unspeakable, unimaginable joy and delight that everything is headed toward, you know, when every tear is wiped away and to, to quote a line from the Lord of the Rings, you know, when all the sad things come untrue, mm. you know, that, that that that's where all of this is going. And that's what we're trying to remind ourselves of is that each moment of our lives is actually lived out on that spectrum of eternity. It's not a now and, you know, there's this now and then there's that. I mean, yes, things are going to be made right and changed and Jesus is going to return like a prince from a fairy tale, Mm. you know, to save his bride and to, to set all things right. But 
every part of our lives now is moving toward that time. I think a word that's been used is how meaning this huge upheaval of everything, except it's all toward good as opposed to, you know, a standard catastrophe, which is turning everything upside down and breaking it apart. But a you catastrophe um, is taking everything that's broken and wrong and hurtful and, and, you know, a struggle and, and turning that on its head, transforming it, you know, into, um, into creation as it was meant to be into our relationships with God as they were meant to be un unmarred by sin, our relationships to one another, you know, unmarred by sin, our relationship and, um, you know, the callings that God has, has given to us, um, which I guess is a whole other subject, but I tend to believe that heaven is not going to be static, but that, you know, that we will still bear the image of God as sub-creators and that, you know, we're still going to be creating things to the glory of God, just like we're, um, you know, struggling to do now. So, um, yeah, so that's a much longer answer than I thought I was going to give you when you <laughs> asked that question. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think that's a, a, a big thing I would want to, to leave people with in, in relation to this whole conversation is that, um, that it's not about duty. It's about the joy that we're called to and that we're moving toward and remembering, even in those moments that feel like drudgery, that they have significance in the light of eternity and that we are sowing seeds, you know, by our faithfulness in these small things that will reap an eternal harvest. And there's, there's, you know, that changes everything if, uh, to the degree that we can grasp that it changes everything about how we live the context of our, of our daily lives. Yeah. And I think, I think even in, in kind of liturgy type form, it, it makes me think of maybe a simple prayer, you know, Lord, may we not see any moment as an interruption. May we not see any person as an annoyance. May we not even see ourselves as the utter failures that we often feel like we are, but, you know, but may we see ourselves and see others as, as all of us, a people longing for things to be true and right and beautiful and good as they were intended. And, and I think, I think from a disciple making standpoint, that kind of refocusing, like you're saying, that kind of reorientation we're not out to convince anyone of some concept. We're out to even help people understand that the, their very heart cry is a connection and an indication of mm. something that they long for. And I think Peterson writes it so and sings it so beautifully. Andrew, um, in his song, I think it's The Burning Edge of Dawn, when he when he talks about that time will finally come when he can finally believe the King has loved him all along. Uh, and yeah. And, yeah. You know, that's that yearning, that's that longing and, and us remembering the King and his kingdom, you know, that's what this every moment, holy idea helps us to do. Man, thank, thank you so much, Doug, for, uh, for just taking the time to join with us on this. I, I hope that for those listening, it, it, it will be and something that spurs on thought, that spurs on that rethinking that you're talking about, that refocusing, a reorientation of sorts. And, um, and so, man, thank you. Thank you for just taking your time today to help us navigate that process that maybe even re-envision some things because of it and uh really appreciate you uh, being willing to join us in that 
Well, thank you, Jason and Paul, uh, for inviting me Great to to, to be part of the conversation. It's been a, an enjoyable conversation. Well, if you'll let me some time, I'd love to treat you to coffee or lunch, and and uh, maybe after you turn your manuscript in, the one you're working yeah. on. But uh, but uh, sure. We we live we all all of us all, we live close enough to each other we could do that but um I appreciate you and appreciate how God uses your creativity and and uh, prayerfully hoping it'll be a great reminder if you are listening and you think you know how uh, how can I get a hold of that uh, I'm, it's it's on Amazon but you can also go to everymomentholy.com right yes. And uh, and you mentioned Rabbit Room several times. It's a Rabbit Room um, is a, a press, but it's also almost a, a um, philosophy would not be the right way to frame it, but basically a place where we can think and feel and express together. Is that fair? And so. yeah, it's a it's well, it's a nonprofit organization. Uh, Rabbit Room Press is yeah. one you know wing of the of the ministry, but. Um, the the purpose statement or vision statement for Rabbit Room um, is to foster Christ-centered community uh, through story, music, and art. Yeah. So that's kind of broadly what what the Rabbit Room is about. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, man, I I uh, I hope folks will check out the resource and check out rabbit room as well. And, um, and uh, hopefully we can get together sometime soon. If you have been listening and you have a question or a comment, you're welcome to send those in to either me or Paul uh, J Dukes at BrentwoodBaptist.com or P Wilkinson at BrentwoodBaptist.com. Um, but we appreciate you joining us for this episode and Doug, we really appreciate you joining us and, and uh, thanks a bunch, man. Thank you, Jason.